0: This is Make Yourself at Home, a podcast from BizNow, where we discuss the future of real estate and development amid the pandemic. I'm Miriam Hall. I'm BizNow's New York reporter. In this episode, we hear from Margaret Anadou. She's the head of Goldman Sachs Urban Investment Group, which does impact investing in underserved communities. In New York, it's one of the groups behind Essex Crossing. A massive six-acre mixed-use development with retail, office, green space and more than a 1,000 new homes on the Lower East Side. Margaret spoke to me from her home in Brooklyn about getting capital to small businesses, what kind of impact this virus will have on the development of workforce and affordable housing in the United States, and why she's eager to get back to the office. So you're the head of the Urban Investment Group. So that's the arm that's focused on putting debt and equity into real estate projects and social enterprises in underserved communities. And that group's really had like very significant growth. When it was first set up it was about 20 million or 30 million a year. Now it's closer to a billion. But do you see that contracting considering the very grim economic outlook?
1: I don't. You know, we are going to we are we are always pivoting and being responsive to the needs on the ground and thinking about how we can use both our financial capital and intellectual capital alongside really, really, really important um, partners and stakeholders. And that's the not-for-profits and communities, that is our public sector stakeholders. And I think probably, you know, the best example is the work that we're doing right now around small business lending. So if you think about our work pre-COVID, we've always known and respected and understood the fact that entrepreneurship and small businesses in the communities where we work, they're the lifeline. They're the lifeline of of services, of culture, of employment. And so they're incredibly important. And so we made a commitment, gosh, this is about 10 years ago now, to invest $250 million of Goldman Capital for small business lending, working through the same community lenders. And so that was you know, an initiative that we, we deployed over a decade. We, gosh, this was a month ago now, we made another $250 million commitment. We doubled down. We said, you know what? These lenders are, they're the right distribution channel. They have the right mission. They have the right expertise and they're really important in this moment. So we made a $250 million commitment. Um, you know, our CEO was uh, really excited about it and, and, you know, we made that commitment publicly. I don't even think a week went by before we doubled that commitment from 250 million to 500 million. And so there has been no retraction in our work to date, right? We don't, I I will say this, we don't act alone, right? So if you, if you look at the projects we're invested in and some of the things we're most proud of around the country, they're public private partnerships. So we're, we're a capital provider, we're a thought partner, um, but we're doing that alongside really best in class you know development partners and not for profits on the ground and of course, the participation of the public sector is is paramount both in terms of the strategy for the communities that we're working in and also their you know their financial partnership as well and so I would say that our our continued work and pace depends on many others as well, and so as all of the, you know, we do a lot of work in New York City. We've done a lot of work down in New Orleans. Those cities jumped to my mind first, just given, you know, the disproportionate health impact and, and COVID crisis that we've seen in those places. And those, those public sector partners are making really difficult decisions right now about where they allocate capital, right? It's the same, you know, budget in New York City that funds affordable housing, you know, that funds a lot of the the additional costs that no one, of course, you know, expected a year ago was going to be devoted towards dealing with the pandemic that we're in. And so we are, um, you know, we're we're one of many partners at the table in all the work that we do. And, you know, they're gonna be, there's gonna be a lot of, you know, prioritization and reprioritization about where capital spent in time is devoted, but, but to date, and actually, you know, Going just back to the small business lending example, you know, we, we set up our first small business lending facility right here in, in New York and we did that directly in partnership with the city. So I think, I think that the priorities that we focus on, you know, communities, housing, job creation, those things are going to be more important now than ever. But I do think we're gonna have to get more creative about how we resource those incredibly important priorities. This crisis really has highlighted
0: what was already pretty well known, a huge level of inequality within the country. You know, There's already data that suggests people of colour have been affected and are dying at higher rates. Scores of job losses, as you say, has affected black and Hispanic people in greater numbers. And Goldman Sachs, I know, did a survey looking at small business loans and who was getting them. And I understand fewer um, African-American owned businesses were getting to the point where they were getting those small business loans. So With Goldman's approach, how are you going to make sure that that is, how you say, thoughtful, going to the right places, helping the
1: community? It's a few things. So, So one is about the lenders that are making the loans to begin with. So if you think about access to capital... Right, capital is an important piece about it. Right, you need money to, you know, start a business, continue a business, working capital, et cetera. And so that's something we've been we've been focused on, you know, since the start of this work with small businesses over a decade ago. But the other important piece is access. Who and how are you getting that capital? Who's it from? What does it look like? What are the terms? And the very very you know explicit point about deploying this five hundred million dollars through community development and financial institutions and other mission-driven lenders is that we know that those groups have an explicit mission to serve underserved businesses. That's businesses that are very small, businesses that are headquartered in low-income communities, businesses that are you know run and owned by people of color. That in the normal course pre-COVID is what these community-driven lenders do. And we have worked with them, uh, many of them for over 10 years. We know their capacity. We know their platform in these communities. We know the trust that they've built in these neighborhoods and with these entrepreneurs. And so first and foremost, making sure that those lenders have the capital and infrastructure to make the loans was paramount. That was that was step one. Step two, was about the public private partnerships that we think are effective across our small business lending work and and our built environment work because if you if you think about a a business in this moment who's struggling you know a lot of them go to the city first you know what what is available I can't sort through all these you know various programs and initiatives and So we wanted to partner directly with the local public sectors, um, you know, in the places that we knew were hardest hit.
0: Why are these businesses, do you think, important to the real estate ecosystem? You know, we talk a lot about like the big banks and the big tenants and the big skyscrapers in New York and how they play a role in the kind of the health and vitality of Manhattan, for example. But what what kind of role do these types of businesses, these small, you're saying one or two employees, what kind of role do they play?
1: Oh, they're, I mean, they are, they're the lifeblood of every community. So if you think about how people make real estate choices and there's, you know, everyone's hierarchy is is slightly different, but you know, no one says, I want to live in a six-story red brick building in a 723 square foot apartment. They say, I want to live in X, Y, or Z neighborhood. And you want to live in X, Y, or Z neighborhood because of the street life and, you know, where you're going to get your cup of milk and, you know, where you're going to get your, your haircut and, you know, what your favorite, you know, restaurant and bar are going to be. And that is, that is all the small businesses, your, your tailor, your hairdresser, your butcher, your, I mean, it's, so that is small businesses to me. And I kind of hate calling them small. I get it. They are, you know, I, I understand it, but they are the neighborhood. And that's, that's from a kind of like a, you know, culture and service perspective. And then of course, employment, you know, it's, it's now, you know, this is something, of course, we've, we've focused on for a long time. The whole thesis behind our 10,000 small businesses initiative is that, you know, half of our, our, our workforce in this country is employed by small businesses. They are the economic engines, you know, not just neighborhood to neighborhood, but of, of, of the country. And, so if you have an all of a sudden decimated, you know, small business infrastructure, you know that also means you probably don't have a really well amenitized neighborhood. And if you don't have a well amenitized neighborhood, then why would anyone want to live there? Um, and so the the interaction between real estate and small businesses is um, it's huge, right? Small businesses also, I mean, just more directly and factually, right? Small businesses are. Are are ground floor tenants, um, you know. So there's a there's a, a lot of a lot of synergy there.
0: Speaking generally, are you concerned at all about the stagnation of the kind of development for the kind of housing that we need in the
1: country, which is affordable and workforce housing? I think there are going to be a, some pros and cons. I think that I think that everyone understands. How how essential housing is, right? It's where we it's where, um, you know, we we be, we begin and we begin and end our days. I think it's also pretty well understood that much of the affordable housing that gets generated in this country is done in very direct partnership with federal support through programs like low income housing tax credits and Section Eight operating subsidies. And in some of the um, even less affordable markets in the country, like a like a New York City, for example, that is also supplemented with pretty significant state and city support as well. And so I think it is going to be really important, and we've already seen this for all of the housing advocates, and that's the you know the developers, the the agencies, the capital providers like ourselves. You know to continue to make sure that housing is at the forefront that people continue to understand how important it is and how already um you know just out of whack our our supply and demand is as it relates to affordable housing because the <laughs> the prioritization discussions are going to be difficult a lot of these cities are having very significant budget issues and there are no good choices, right? Are you going to cut back on affordable housing production? Are you going to, you know, cut back on trash pickup? Are you going to, you know, there's, they're, they're not, you know, there's not a lot of fluff in, in city budgets. And so I think that it will be important to continue to remember how important housing is and how much it ties to everything else. And just the very basic idea that having a quality and affordable place to live in a, in a neighborhood that provides opportunity is the link to education. It's the link to health outcomes. It's the link to employment outcomes. And so a lack of investment and continued investment in housing is going to have negative consequences um, far down the line. And so I think it's it's really important for people uh, to remember that. But do you think investors will view it as
0: a place to put money? I mean, that's the, that's the concern, right? I mean, everyone understands how valuable it is. Everyone understands how much we need it. But whether or not it can attract investment is, an, is another matter.
1: Sure. and I, Yeah. And I think, I, think it, I think it depends what, um, you know, a part of multifamily we're talking about. I think as, as you think about asset classes more broadly, certainly within real estate, um, you know, multifamily tends to be fairly resilient. Um, and so it is certainly... Uh, it, it is certainly a less risky asset class than, you know, some of, especially in this moment, right? I, th- I think if someone, if an investor is making a decision whether to invest in, you know, a stabilized multifamily asset relative to a hotel right now and thinking just, you know, with, with a lot of presentism just about the moment that we're in, you know, I don't think that's a, a complicated debate. And so, look, there are going to be a lot of fears about, look, there's a lot of stress in the system and does that impact people's ability to pay their rent, right? And then the April numbers came out in terms of collections across the country and it was a mixed bag, you know, but then you also saw, you know, the tick up in the percentage of rent that was paid with credit cards. And so there's, there's mixed data out there, but on the whole, I think the view that, that multifamily over time remains uh, a resilient and, you know, on a relative basis, pretty safe place to put capital. I, I don't think that that overall thesis changes. What I do think gets hurt is development. So taking that construction risk, the, the lease up risk, um, you know, sourcing, financing to get things off the ground, I do think that will, will, will slow some and we'll see, um, yeah, we'll see, a, we'll see a slower pace there.
0: Aren't we already kind of climbing out of 2008 and the slowing there in terms of the supply? And is this going to mean another problem on top of what
1: was already a problem? Yeah, I I would say that this moment is going to exacerbate what was already a challenge. And so, if we if we go back six months, even or or a year, there was already an incredible uh, mismatch between the afford the supply of affordable and workforce housing, and just the the demand there. And what i'm hopeful for and trying to take sort of an, an optimistic spin on it is the issue itself will be greater right if if actual if new development slows and the creation of affordable affordable housing slows and that could be you know quite frankly just purely on you know pressure from from local public sector budgets what i'm hoping might offset that is an increased focus so when everyone is talking about incredibly high unemployment numbers and you know, I think we have, you know, the million alone that have fallen for unemployment in a place like New York City. It's hard to really think about the challenges of that population that's now out of work without first thinking about where they're gonna live and how they're gonna pay their rent. And so the dollars and cents of it are going to be challenging. But in terms of attention and mind share and focus, and you already saw this in um, if you looked at what was released in, in, you know, the House's version of kind of phase four of the Stimulus Act, there was a lot in there about housing. And so we're hopeful that, you know, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to raise the discussion hopefully to a new pitch and maybe that will, you know, that will spur, you know, new kinds of partnerships and initiatives around housing, even in a moment where from just the pure financing of it, we're all going to have to be more creative.
0: So how do you think development is going to be viewed now? There has been a lot of discussion and a lot of distrust around development in communities, particularly communities that have been underserved in the past. Do you think that might change now? And what kind of role do you think developers might have in that?
1: You know, I think some of it will. It's a great question. I think that, you know what, it's 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 almost similar to, to my thought around kind of a, just, a, you know, affordable housing and, and mixed income housing generally, I think we are all, I think that we're all gonna be engaged in pretty interesting discussions over the next, you know, months and, and years about what all this means for how we, you know, how we live our lives and, and, and how we work and working from home. And, you know, if you're gonna be working from home, what it means about where and how you live, right? In a place like New York City, you know, it's it's no secret that it's it's very expensive to, to live here. And, you know, part of why people live here is because they work here. And so I think that in those discussions and, uh, you know, the countless white papers and, and think tanks and plans on plans on plans, you know, I'm hopeful that unlike, you know, some of these moments in the past, communities can actually be at the at the forefront of that. I think, un- unfortunately, there's a lot of time spent thinking about what communities need and how housing should be developed that does not actually appropriately include the voices of the people who are actually most impacted. And so what's developed over time, and you mentioned that distrust is you know, the sense of planning and planning and planning, you know, when we sit down and, you know, we work in sort of, you know, new neighborhoods and new cities, you know, we hear time and time again, you know, we're on plan number 16, right? There's a, you know, new plan with every mayor, new plan with every, you know, new head of this group and that group. And there's, of course, fatigue there. And so I think what'll, what'll be important is for community, you know, stakeholders and, and citizens and, and families to be engaged in discussions that are, you know, productive and action-oriented and collaborative, and so this, you know, the idea, and I'm sure you've you've I've probably read, you know, no less than five articles over the last week that are some flavor of what does this mean for our cities, and what do we think about resiliency and. You know what does it mean for you know live work play environments when the work piece of that is 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 different or what does it mean for for housing now that we've all you know been in our homes for two months and you know maybe they're not what we want so I, I think that there's going to be a lot of discussion and I think discussion is good when people are thinking about issues and working through them but I do hope strongly um, that all this discussion actually gets to the folks who are impacted and and that matter and I think that some and I think this changes from you know neighborhood to neighborhood city to city I think that some cities actually have set up pretty thoughtful structures around how how voices and communities are heard but not just heard but how those opinions actually work their way into processes of development, whether it's you know uh you know community boards in New York or you know the site plan approval that happens in in Newark, or the, you know, their cities do it in, in different ways. But I think it's a, it's a moment to step back and say a lot is going to change. We don't know exactly what. We don't know exactly what things are going to look like. But I do think there's this sense of knowing that we're walking towards, you know, different types of cities and different types of of planning and development, but not knowing exactly what that that looks like and knowing that, that that set of voices and collaboration that kind of bubble to the top and influence, you know, even even just the, the stimulus bills and, and where that gets allocated. And there's been, you know, bipartisan talk of now's the real moment for a big infrastructure bill and what really counts as infrastructure and what do we prioritize. It's just a moment where we all need to, to just do a lot more listening um, and just making sure communities are heard.
0: Let's talk generally, I mean, what's your view on how New York City is going to look? I know that this is something that you know you said that you've read five articles on in the last week, but you live here with your family. I mean, how do you think the city's going to recover? Or do you think the city's going to recover?
1: Of course, the city will recover. Um, you know New York City and you know obviously 9 eleven is a it's, a it's a tough part, of course, in the, in the city's history and a lot of a lot. There's a lot of pain around that that we all that we all still feel. And but I do think it is a it's a comeback story, right? If you if you go back to to that time and we all you know go back and, and read that press and those worries, there was everyone saying, you know, no one would ever work downtown and no one would ever live downtown. And even broader than that, why would folks choose to, you know, live in a in a city that's this expensive, where you know the risk of terrorism is certainly. Higher than in many other parts in the country, and you know, over the last um, you know period of time since then, we've seen incredible growth. Right, the city is not is not perfect. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done in in many neighborhoods, and you know, income inequality is in a pretty um, is in a pretty horrifying place. But the city the city came back, and so this is this is unprecedented. That I think we're all using that word a lot but it is it is fair and true we are in you know we're in times that no one can sort of just you know point to some other period in place and and come up with a with a roadmap but New York is is resilient it's a special place it is you know the the financial sort of you know system is still here the culture the food the diversity um and so it, it's 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 hard for, for me to think that a pandemic like this, which has been tragic on so many levels, I live half a block from Brooklyn hospital. Um, and so I actually, you know, my, my family every day at seven o'clock, you know, we, we poke our heads out the window and with the entire neighborhood, we think, you know, we think the essential workers and the healthcare workers and, you know, my three-year-old screams that the, you know, patients should keep fighting. And so there's, it's, it's, none of that is, is lost on me of course, but I also think at the same time that you know, New Yorkers fight and New Yorkers come back and the benefits of living in a place like this are not, are not lost. I think that we all have a lot of work to do in terms of how we um, you know, take care of and think through the families and neighborhoods that are you know, obviously gonna disproportionately suffer from this pandemic, but I do think, um, I do think we'll see the other side you know, New York's New York's not going not going anywhere.
0: What's your take on working from home now? Do you have you have, have you had a reshaping of your views in terms of your work from Goldman Sachs and your ability to ability to get things done?
1: It's a mixed bag. I mean, it's it's funny because I've been my whole team, like we've been so busy. Um, you know, as I mentioned, with the with the lending initiative and just, you know. Making sure that all of our our partners and projects are are in good shape um and so look we've we've been productive right i you know I think we've all realized that yes you can you can sit at home in front of a computer and type away and zoom call your life away um I would say for me personally and I want to speak for you know my my team or, or the firm I, I really miss my team <laughs> you know there there is just something about sitting in a room and Debating something and and being face to face and kind of you know just you know running into someone and having a good idea and I th- I I I I miss that a lot um, and I actually really started to feel it. It's probably a few weeks ago where I had a moment where I said, "Gosh, like I gotta like I need some some human interactions." And we've done the little things, making sure that we're switching our our conference calls to be Zooms and you know, we're doing the Zoom drinks and, and all those sorts of things. But I, I do think it's hard to completely replace um, you know, human human direct human interaction and, and the 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 productivity and ideation that comes from that. And so I um look I've been productive but I'm also I'm ready I'm ready to get back in the office and, and actually, you know, see people in person. You don't think this is the end of office then, as we know it? No, no. I think I think that's being overdone.
0: That's Margaret Anadou. She's the head of Goldman Sachs Urban Investment Group. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.